When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Tuesday morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. I'm so thrilled to have my buddy all the way from Atlanta, Victor Blackwell. Good Happy morning, to be friend. Here. Good to be with you. Back in the day, we used to get to sit next to each other. Right, a right, long time right. Ago. Way back on, I don't even know what the show was called then. CNN we were Saturday morning. I was wrinkle free. I'm glad you're here. You're I appreciate it. it. There's a lot of news to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Tuesday, June 20th. A desperate search and rescue operation underway for a tourist submersible carrying five people who paid to see wreckage of the Titanic. The U.S. Coast Guard, just one of multiple teams scouring the Atlantic Ocean this morning, trying to locate that vessel thousands of feet below the surface. Fresh off his latest indictment, Donald Trump offers up a new defense of why he didn't turn over those classified documents. He says he was too busy. A tropical storm brewing over the Atlantic is expected to strengthen into a hurricane by tomorrow. We are tracking where that's headed. In just a matter of hours, the Texas Senate is expected to set the ground rules in the impeachment trial for embattled State Attorney General Ken Paxson among the procedures to debate should his wife, who is a sitting state senator, be allowed to serve as a juror. And have you had your BMI checked lately? Turns out it may not be the best barometer after all to gauge your health risks. CNN This Morning starts right now. We begin this morning on just a terrifying, a terrifying story. A huge search and rescue operation is underway right now, really racing against time, trying to find a tourist submersible that went missing on a trip to see the Titanic shipwreck. Five people we know are on board. The United States and Canadian Coast Guards have launched an all-out search with planes, with ships, and with buoys equipped with sonar. As of yesterday afternoon, officials estimated the passengers could have been somewhere between 70 and 96 hours worth of air. That's all they had, they believe, and that was yesterday. We're learning more about the people who were on the submarine. The passengers included a British billionaire explorer, a Pakistani businessman and his son, and CBC News and CTV News in Canada are reporting that a world-renowned French diver and Titanic expert was also on this trip. CNN has yet to confirm, though, that he is indeed on board. Take a look. These are some of the last images of the submersible as it prepared to dive down on Sunday. The ocean is about 13,000 feet deep in that area. The deepest ever underwater rescue was less than 2,000 feet, just for some perspective. So we begin this hour with our colleague, CNN national correspondent Jason Carroll, live from Boston. Any updates this morning, Jason? Well, Poppy, what I can tell you is that, as you can well understand, a massive uh, search is now underway, a search by air, a search by, uh, a search by sea. The Coast Guard has also reached out to experts in deep-sea exploration, so they've reached out to people in the field. Uh, meanwhile, time is running out. We're doing everything that we can do uh, to locate uh, the submersible and rescue uh, those on board. 
search and rescue teams from the United States and Canada are working around the clock in the North Atlantic to locate a lost submersible with five people on board. Search planes have been scanning the ocean's surface, sonar buoys deployed, to try to detect any sound from the missing vessel. The location of the search is approximately 900 miles uh, east of Cape Cod uh, in a water depth of uh, roughly 13,000 feet. According to the Coast Guard, the submersible lost communication with its mothership, the Polar Prince, less than two hours into its descent Sunday morning as it ventured towards the wreckage of the Titanic. The company that operates the submersible on voyages to the Titanic, Ocean Gate Expeditions, releasing this statement. Our entire focus is on the well-being of the crew, and every step possible is being taken to bring the five crew members back safely. On board, businessman Hamish Harding, who is no stranger to adventure. I've always wanted to do this. Recently, he was a passenger on Blue Origin's June 2022 spaceflight. On Saturday, he posted on his Facebook page, I am proud to finally announce that I joined Ocean Gate Expeditions for their RMS Titanic mission as a mission specialist on the sub going down to the Titanic. Also on board, Pakistani businessman Shahzada Dawood and his son, Suleiman Dawood. Their family issuing a statement saying, we are very grateful for the concern being shown by our colleagues and friends and would like to request everyone to pray for their safety. According to Ocean Gate Expedition's website, the 21-foot, 23,000-pound submersible made of carbon fiber and titanium has up to 96 hours, four days, of oxygen for five people. Larry Daly, a Titanic expert, has been inside the 21-foot vessel. I was in the sub for uh, 12 hours. We have our own breathing system on board, and if that's maintained properly, like changing your uh, filter and your CO2 scrubber, you can stay down there for you know quite a few hours. In an interview with CBS last year, Ocean Gate Expedition CEO touting the submersible's safety. Everything else can fail. Your thrusters can go. Your lights can go. You're still going to be safe. Well, it's still unclear why the submersible lost contact with the ship that was on the surface. According to OceanGate, there is a system on board, some sort of an early warning system, which is supposed to uh, alert the pilot if something has gone wrong on board the vessel. Again, unclear at this point what went wrong here. Poppy? Jason, thank you for the reporting and stick with us for a minute because Victor and I have so many questions about this. I mean, one of them is, I know they have these buoys with sonar trying to, to find it. D d would this be something that would set off pings? Because we know it didn't have GPS, right? They use text messages to communicate with the vessel, uh, you know, with the ship. Would it even be emitting pings that sonar could trace? Well, that is a question that uh, is still outstanding at this point. But uh, again, there is a system on board which is uh, supposed to alert the pilot, as I said, should something go wrong. And one would uh, theorize then that there would be some sort of an emergency uh, alert system if something had gone wrong. So if you do send out some sort of sonar, you know, down below the surface of the water, uh, that would ping. Uh, so that is something, again, that we're still trying to find out. We are expecting to get uh, another briefing uh, from the U.S. Coast Guard here in Boston. Mm -hmm. 
So perhaps at that t- at that point, we'll be able to get some more information about how these sonar pings are going to work, more information about the C-130s that are in the air at this point, searching from the air. So perhaps at that point, we'll get more information, more specifics about how they're trying to find this vessel. Jason, what do we know about the scope of, of the search? If this, you know, this Titan submersible, it doesn't move very quickly. Right. It's going straight down two and a half miles. Do we know how many right. square nautical miles they believe this thing could be in? It is a very, very vast area. And this was a question that was asked of the Coast Guard yesterday, again, specifically asking, okay, what sort of search area are we talking about here? Because one would theorize, again, if you've got the ship on the surface and then you've got this vessel, which is descending at any sort of particular rate, you know, are you searching within that square area or because of currents and, and, and other factors, how much have you widened that search out? That was another question, again, that was asked of the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard was trying to get that information. Again, it's still waiting to hear back from them. Jason Carroll, really appreciate the reporting. Thank you so much. Jason's going to get an update uh, from the Coast Guard. And also ahead here on our 8 a.m. Eastern Hour, we will speak directly with the Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger. He's overseeing the search and rescue operations where crews are now headed as the oxygen inside of this vessel dwindles. Russia is unleashing Iranian drones. It happened overnight at Ukraine's capital. Officials in Kyiv say they came in waves from all directions and that air defenses shot down more than two dozen of them. Meantime, President Vladimir Zelensky says Ukraine is only gaining ground on the Russians and has not lost any positions in its counteroffensive. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is in Kyiv. Fred, uh, are there reports of, of damage caused by these drone attacks? Mm. Hi there, Victor. Well, we haven't actually received much in the way of reports of damage of these attacks. And I think one of the things that you mentioned is extremely important in all that, where the Ukrainians are saying that they detected 35 of these Shahed drones that were some of them coming in waves and already apparently in the vicinity of the Ukrainian capital. But the Ukrainians were able to shoot down 32 of those. Now, it's unclear where the others three might have landed, what kind of damage they may have caused. But we certainly haven't heard anything this morning in the way of loss of life here in the Ukrainian capital. And certainly one of the things that that does point to is obviously the efficiency of the Ukrainian air defenses, which is something that we've been seeing here as we've been on the ground in the Ukrainian capital. You know, we have an air raid alarm uh, almost every night and sometimes during the day as well. And very often it is these Shahed drones that are used in conjunction with ballistic missiles, in conjunction with cruise missiles. They send these waves of drones to try and penetrate the air defenses. But as we can see, once again, the air defenses seem to be working very well. Nevertheless, of course, the Ukrainians are saying that these Shaheds do remain a very large problem for them as they do threaten the population centers of this country and, of course, critical infrastructure as well, Victor. President Zelensky says that uh, Ukrainian troops are losing no territory, only making gains on Russians. What do we know Mm. about the the latest in the counteroffensive? Well, it's difficult. And I think one of the things that we see with uh, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, saying that is that there were some people on the ground who were feeling that the counteroffensive should be going quicker uh, than some people may have anticipated and maybe some people had hoped for. And of course, Victor, you know, we just returned from the front lines there in southeastern Ukraine. And one of the things that we did see for the Ukrainians is that the going is very tough. It's certainly something that a lot of them had anticipated. And we spoke to some units on the ground. And, and I have to say, all the ones that we spoke to were still very much in good spirits, but they do say that the Russian defenses are really tough and that the Russians certainly are putting up a fight as well. The Ukrainians right now, as they say, 
are sort of penetrating the early stages or, or, or the first stages of those defense lines, but they haven't even reached the main defense lines of the Russians. So they understand there is going to be a tough battle ahead. And one of the things that they have said again and again, the biggest problem for them on the ground is Russian air power. It's being discovered by Russian drones, they're getting blanketed with artillery, but also Russian helicopters and jets as well. So the Ukrainians are saying um, they need to do something on that front to, 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 to try and improve their own short-range air defenses as they move forward. It is an extremely tough battle, but certainly the Ukrainian president seems to be correct. And this is something that we've seen over the past 24 hours as well. Right now, it is Ukraine that is on the offensive on pretty much all parts of the front line. The Russians on the defensive in pretty much all of, uh, all of those parts, Victor. And we'll talk about some of those uh, advances a little later in the show. Fred Pleitkin for us there in Kiev. Thank you so much. Tropical storm Brett building strength in the Atlantic and about to become a hurricane. Where it could be headed? Also a new order in Donald Trump's classified documents case. He is not allowed to share certain information with his supporters or the media. More on that ahead. No matter what I do, hey. all I think about is you. Say what? Even when I'm with my boo, uh. you know I'm crazy over you. What you said? No matter what I do. Tropical storm Brett, the second named storm of this early Atlantic hurricane season, is now churning in the Atlantic with maximum sustained winds of 40 miles per hour. Forecasters say it could become a hurricane as soon as tomorrow as it pushes closer to the Wayward Islands. Uh, this is uh, with more than 25 million Americans are under a severe storm threat today. Let's bring in now meteorologist Derek Van Dam in the CNN Weather Center. All right, tell us what we need to know about Brett. Okay, what you need to know is that how highly unusual it is for this storm to form in the month of June in the location that it actually is. This is called the main development region. We look for the African wave train, kind of these clusters of thunderstorms that move off the west coast of Africa, traverse the Atlantic Ocean, eventually start to form into hurricanes or tropical storms. This instance, tropical storm Brett. But the water here is running about two to five degrees Fahrenheit above average. So this is like jet fuel for development of hurricanes and tropical storms. So that's what we have here. We have another wave that's uh, going to likely be named later today. But let's focus in on what Brett's about to do because this is the official forecast track from the National Hurricane Center. It does show a strengthening storm into a low-grade Category 1 hurricane by Thursday morning. And then you see some gradual weakening as it travels towards the Windward Islands, the Lesser Antilles, so Grenada into Barbados, St. Vincent, and then the Eastern Caribbean. We should see some further de-strengthening or uh, de-strengthening strengthening uh, as it continues to travel across that area. Here's a look at the forecast rainfall. We could get a couple of inches of rain, especially across the Windward Islands, and certainly the potential for hurricane force gusts. But this is wind shear. Hurricanes and wind shear do not work well together. So anytime we get that upper level, uh, high level winds, that's going to kind of shear apart the storm. Uh, so the potential exists, at least uh, some of the models indicating that this system will start to become disorganized in the five to seven day time frame. That's good news for the United States. But the not-so-good news is a severe weather threat that continues to move across the deep south. This area has been battered with day after day of severe storms. In fact, I think I'm counting on maybe seven to eight days of continuous severe storms across this region. From New Orleans into Mobile, you saw some of the flash flood video out of that area. Uh, level two of five of flash flood exists for that region today. 
Victor? And the heat some people are dealing with. We'll yeah. talk about that a little later, yeah. but those triple-digit temperatures yeah. are, are sweltering there. Derek Van Dam, thanks so much. All right, okay. up next on CNN This Morning, this. A team of five will squeeze into Titan for each dive and view the wreckage on these monitors. To fly the vessel, the pilot uses a PlayStation controller. That's our very own colleague, Gabe Cohen, who has reported literally in the submersible that is now missing near the Titanic wreckage. He'll show us what it's like inside that vessel, tell us a lot more about the company behind it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We are following the news off the coast of Newfoundland very closely. Right now, ships and planes are searching for five people on board a small submersible, which set out to see the remains of the Titanic at the bottom of the North Atlantic. But time is of the essence, as there may only be 70 to 96 hours of oxygen left on board. What is it actually like being inside that vessel? Watch. Inside, the sub has about as much room as a minivan. So this is not your grandfather's submersible. <laughs> we only have one button, that's it. It should be like an elevator. You know, it shouldn't take a lot of skill. We can use these off-the-shelf components. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! So that was a CBS Sunday Morning News report by David Pogue just last year. Our colleague and friend Gabe Cohen also can share his experience because you've reported on this company a lot. You've been inside the submersible when it was above ground when you were working for our affiliate KOMO. What's it like? Yeah, Poppy, that's right. So I did several stories on OceanGate during my time reporting in Seattle, Washington. You can see an image there uh, of me actually inside of Titan, the vessel that's now missing. We do stories uh, when OceanGate would finish some of these vessels, set off on expeditions. And in 2018, uh, that's when I did the story there, uh, interviewing the CEO, Stockton Rush, about Titan. And we went to OceanGate headquarters in Everett, Washington. Uh, We talked to the crew, and I I was really blown away by how simple some of the technology seemed. It's this tiny vessel, quite cramped and small. You can see you have to sit inside of it, shoes off. It can only fit uh, five people. It is operated, um, as you heard in that report, by a gaming controller, what essentially looks like a PlayStation controller. But what seemed so simple, the crew and the CEO uh, really insisted could pull off this remarkable feat. It could dive 13,000 feet down into the ocean and handle 150 million pounds of pressure that it would feel uh, on the ocean floor. And it has made, of course, uh, that expedition before. But uh, it was incredible to see at that time, right as they were packing up uh, the vessel and and getting ready for one of these expeditions. Um, so it's, it is obviously very uh, difficult and sad to see what's happened now. Yeah, Gabe, uh, it's, it's interesting because it seems like the company's proud of the uh, ability to build this using consumer available parts. Simply, yeah. Your gamer controller, um, a monitor they buy from a store, a, a simple button push that they say this should be simple. Um, what can you tell us about the company OceanGate Expeditions that, that's running this? 
Yeah, so Victor, the company was founded in 2019 by its current CEO, Stockton Rush. They have done uh, many of these expeditions and really science-driven expeditions. That's what they uh, have pushed for uh, to different shipwrecks, not just the Titanic, also uh, the Andrea Doria. And repeatedly, they would tell me that, yes, you know, you talk about those consumer-friendly products like the game controller, but they also stress that the carbon fiber structure of Titan could reliably pull off a mission like this, and they did not uh, spare any expense or cut any corners to pull that off. That's what they uh, repeatedly said to me. I've interviewed Stockton Rush several times, and not just him, but also uh, his staff and his crew. They would talk about safety over and over and how confident they were in the technology of this vessel and of the other vessels they had designed over time. Um, But we have since learned that Titan has uh, had some issues before with communication, that it's they've lost communication with support crew uh, on the surface of the ocean before. CBS News reported uh, that last year the vessel was lost for more than two hours, unable to get messages uh, from the surface, which they rely on to figure out where they're going because there's no GPS on board. So uh, in this case, Titan's last communication with their support group was Sunday at 11.47 a.m. local time, but authorities weren't actually notified until after 6.30 p.m., uh, nearly a half hour after the vessel was scheduled to surface, uh, but it didn't. To be really quickly, Gabe, the, the FAA, for example, has to sign off on all these safety things for commercial airplanes. Does this entity have any regulatory body that has to sign off before they can put people in it? That's a good question. As far as we know, no. OceanGate on their website talks a little about this, about how these, uh, these vessels are not classed okay. and that essentially... Uh, federal regulation or regulations in general have not caught up with innovation. And so uh, passengers who who ride on these vessels, who go on these expeditions, have to sign waivers. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not clear exactly what the regulatory process is. Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. It's just interesting because I think about Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin and these, you know, commercial civilian space. They have to have certain sign-off from regulatory bodies. Let's actually uh, read what's on their website. You bring up an interesting point. This is from their website. Um, By definition, innovation is outside of an already accepted system. However, this does not mean that OceanGate does not meet standards where they apply. But it does mean that innovation often falls outside of the existing industry Mm. paradigm. So that's an important context, especially as we go into this next conversation uh, with Craig Sopin. Uh, He is a Titanic historian. He studies Titanic wreckage. Craig, thanks for being with us. So you know the area. You know this portion of the North Atlantic. As we now have the Coast Guard from the U.S. and Canada, the U.S. Navy, in this search, and there's not a lot of time, what are some of the environmental challenges that they are going to face in trying to not only find this within the time of of the air availability in this capsule, but also to pull it from wherever it is in in the ocean. Good morning. It's good to be with you. So when we think about Titanic, which was almost 900 feet long at the bottom of the ocean, and then we think about Titan, which is only about 21 or 22 feet long, it took 73 years to locate Titanic, notwithstanding its size. And when we compare it, We're looking at now something that's 22 feet long, and we may think instinctively that it would take even longer than 73 years to find something like this. But fortunately, our technology in 2023 is better than it was in 1912 and even better than it was in 1985 when Titanic was located. 
But Titanic itself and this whole region of the North Atlantic is a very caustic environment. It's sort of a poisonous environment. Nothing really can survive outside of a submarine at that depth, over 12,500 feet. Mm. Uh, not to mention the fact that it's a known area for swells and storms and things like that. So despite the fact that we are dealing with the best Navy in the world and the best Coast Guard, they have their work cut out for them because the ocean is a very big place. And this particular area is a very difficult place. But fortunately, technology should be able to accommodate for a lot of that, such as sonar testing. And it's sort of unknown whether this submersible has a pinger so that we can listen to the ping and, and try and locate it. Uh, that I don't know about. The website doesn't mention whether there's a pinger or not. But other than that, I can say that Ocean Gate is a very safety-oriented company. Mm. They test. Uh, they, they cancel voyages when the weather looks a little bit iffy. So I'm thinking that between the safety measures that were used uh, through Ocean Gate and this particular sub and the technology that we have through the Navy and through the Coast Guard, that this is going to be something that gets resolved at some point before the oxygen runs out. I think we have about another two days, assuming the vessel was still intact, that the oxygen can keep these five people alive. Let's hope so. It's so striking to hear you say it took, you know, 73 years to find the Titanic, ultimately discovered in, in 1985. So that, you know, it has been many years since 1985. Has the technology to locate something like this gotten markedly better? Or has it not changed that much? Yeah, it, it has gotten better. In 1985, we were able to find Titanic with side-scanning sonar. Sonar has gotten better. We are now using actually C-130s, using airplanes rather than just submersibles to try and find this ship. So it has gotten a lot better since then. But we have to remember that it is a very big ocean and we're dealing with a very small craft. Well, Craig Sopin, uh, we appreciate your expertise and insight, uh, and we're going to lean on you again as we uh, follow this two days' worth of air left. That left me hopeful hearing yeah. him say two, two days. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, Craig, thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. Coming up, this. But why not just hand them over then? Because I had the boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. That was former President Trump offering up a new excuse for why he didn't hand over those classified documents. And the Washington Post reports the FBI held back on investigating Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection for more than a year. The reason, next. A magistrate judge has issued a new order barring Donald Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nada, from revealing any materials handed over to their legal teams by prosecutors. This is in the classified documents case. In an interview that uh, from last night, the former president offered a new reason for not giving the boxes to investigators. Before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more, not that I know of, but not that I know of, but everything was declassified. 
CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us live from Washington now. Uh, Caitlin, the former president says he had some golf shirts in those boxes, so he didn't want to hand them over. He was too busy to look through them. Fit this defense explanation into what we already know about the case. What do you make of the new line? Well, uh, Poppy and Victor, I don't know if you ask any defense lawyer on the planet if it's wise for their client to talk about the facts of a case after they've been charged and are heading to trial wanting to fight it. Uh, most will say that that is not something that you should do. Defendants are even warned not uh, that they could be uh, anything they say could be held against them in the court of law once they are arrested. And Donald Trump is out there now on Fox News in this interview, essentially uh, responding to many of the things that are alleged in this indictment. Specifically, uh, Brett Baer asks him about the subpoena he received, the subpoena where a grand jury demanded that he return any classified documents or documents with classified markings in his possession to the federal government. And here was what his response was was there. Well, why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. So Trump does appear there to be acknowledging the delay. And the next thing he says that he did want to pull out his personal things before giving boxes back things like golf shirts, other clothing. Uh, there is also another portion of this interview uh, where he is asked about the Bedminster 2021 episode where he's caught uh, on an audio recording talking about and referring to a top secret or secret uh, document in his hand, uh, waving documents around. Here's what he said about that as well. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just so Trump is clearly acknowledging that he may have remembered that episode here. But when you get into the court, uh, Victor and Poppy, there's going to be witnesses. There's going to be that audio tape that the Justice Department would be able to play at trial. And there will be people who were in that room who we know have already testified to the grand jury would be very likely mm -hmm. uh, that they could be called back and testify at a trial. And would Donald Trump take the stand and say those same things uh, in court? That's going to be a big question because what he says on television may not be what he would also say under oath. Oh, that's a really good point. Also, the magistrate judge in all of this has signed off on a request in order from the special counsel, Jack Smith, essentially uh, saying you can't share any of this discovery that the Trump team gets. You can't share it with the media. You can't share it with supporters. You can't share it with anyone. I, I read that and I sort of thought, well, that's obvious. But obviously the judge felt he needed an order for this. It is obvious. This is something that is very common in criminal cases. There's almost always an agreement uh, that usually comes very early, just like this, that has not a lot of dispute around it. And it just says that a defense team, a defendant himself, and then any other witnesses that they're talking to, other lawyers, if they share any evidence from the case with them, uh, they can't share it more widely. That's a way to protect the integrity of a trial. But in this situation, it's an important moment because it's a restriction placed on Donald Trump. Uh, and Donald Trump is clearly a person who's already charged with wanting to uh, allegedly share 
documents that are protected on from the national security perspective, how he handles this and how he responds to this, if he can abide by it leading up to trial, that's a new world for him as a criminal defendant. There's a judge's order yeah. on this. It really changes things. You're right when you are a criminal defendant. Caitlin Pollens, thank you for all the reporting. So the United States is urging de-escalation between Israelis and Palestinians this morning. This is after an Israeli raid on the West Bank town of Jenin on Monday. Left, that left at least six Palestinians dead, dozens wounded. Our colleague Elliot Gottkind joins us live from Jerusalem. So the U.S. is, is hoping for de-escalation here. What can you tell us? Poppy, this uh, raid which took place on Monday is, of course, over. The dust has settled on that. But I think the ramifications of the vicious fighting that ensued is something that will perhaps uh, persist in the uh, days and weeks ahead because... It's not uncommon for Israel to go into Jenin or other cities in the West Bank uh, to arrest wanted militants. That's what it did yesterday. It arrested one member of uh, Hamas, one member of Islamic Jihad. But it, what it wasn't expecting in particular was this improvised explosive device that took out one of its vehicles and damaged a number of others. The IDF described this uh, IED as pretty advanced. And then on top of that, after the Israeli soldiers, a number of whom had been wounded, were kind of bogged down in Jenin, they had to call for support from an Apache helicopter. And that's the first time that's happened in the West Bank in some two decades. And as you say, the result of all of that is that six Palestinians were killed. Half of them have been claimed by the Jinnin Brigades, a militant group that's associated with Islamic Jihad. Uh, the last of those six funerals took place earlier today in Jenin. There's been condemnation from the Egyptians, from the Jordanians. And as you say, the US State Department also calling for a de-escalation. We also saw Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visiting some of the injured soldiers on Monday afternoon, reiterating that Israel would continue to carry out these kinds of raids as and when it sees fit. Poppy? Elie thank you very much for that reporting from Jerusalem. The mystery in Kansas continues. Government officials across the state are getting ominous letters with white powder. So, of course, the question is, what is it? Who sent it? The latest on the investigation. That's ahead. Also, President Biden set to meet with artificial intelligence experts today, trying to learn more about the benefits and, of course, risks and how to balance it all. The FBI is responding to those dozens of suspicious letters sent to public officials in Kansas, many of them containing some type of white powder. Investigators say early tests suggest the powder is not any type of biological agent, but cloaked in the mystery appear to be political overtones. CNN's Rosa Flores has been following this story. Rosa, so you spoke with a Kansas lawmaker who received uh, one of these letters what did she say uh, about this and why she believes that Republicans are receiving these letters? Victor, good morning. Yes, I spoke to Representative Tori Marie Blue. She's a Republican, and she says that the GOP-led legislature in Kansas voted to override multiple vetoes by the current Democratic governor. And she says that many of these were very controversial, but she points to one specifically, one regarding transgender female athletes. And the reason why she says that is because she points to the actual envelope that she received for a clue. She says that she looked at the name of the return address, looked it up, and it's actually the name of a transgender woman who died. And she believes that that's not by mistake. Take a listen. It's unfortunate that that's the political climate that we're in today. Um, 
I just keep thinking about when I agree, when I disagree with somebody, I agree to disagree and I want to move forward. Um, I think of how polarizing our, our politics have gotten. Now, authorities have not identified that as the motive here. But, Victor, it's important to note that uh, the FBI, KBI, which is the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, they're all investigating. No one has been hurt, according to these agencies and authorities, as you mentioned, have tested this powder and it has come back negative for biological agents. You mentioned the law enforcement agencies that are investigating this. You've got roughly 100 letters uh, received overall. This must be putting a, a, a massive strain on law enforcement to recover the letters, process the letters, and make sure that the powder in each of them is harmless. You know, you're absolutely right. Representative Blue talked to me about this, and she actually shared photos of the recovery process at her parents' house, because that's where the letter was. And you can look at these photos, and she says that there was a lot of resources that were needed. It required the bomb squad, a hazmat unit, an ambulance, a fire truck, the FBI, the KBI, other emergency vehicles just to recover one letter. And just imagine, Victor, as you mentioned, there are 100 of those letters across the state of Kansas. And these are finite resources that the state and federal government has. As a matter of fact, Representative Blue says that some of the lawmakers were told to double bag those letters, leave them outside because the recovery could take a while. And I should mention, Victor, Victor, that I asked the KBI, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, about this to see if they are still recovering these letters or what the recovery time has been, if anybody else is waiting. And I have not heard back. All right. Rosa Victor. Flores doing the reporting for us. Thank you, Rosa. And ahead, Republican Kansas state lawmaker Stephen Owen. He will join us. He has also received one of these threatening letters. We'll talk about what he thinks is behind this campaign and his concern for his safety. Five people were in a submersible looking for the wreckage of the Titanic, but that sub disappeared on board a billionaire, a father and a son. Next hour, the key factors at play, how much oxygen remains and the complicated efforts to try to bring them safely home. Stay with us. Well, President Biden preparing today to meet with leaders in artificial intelligence as part of his West Coast swing. The White House says the goal is to talk with these experts and researchers about the advantages of AI, but also how to manage the risks. Our Arlette signs live at the White House with more. I think one thing that's been encouraging is to see the White House, see Congress sort of try to get ahead on this where we fell so behind on social media. Is that part of what the White House is trying to do here? Yeah, it is, Poppy. And the White House is really racing to try to get a handle on this quickly evolving world of artificial intelligence, with an issue that the White House says is a top priority for President Biden. We've heard President Biden himself share how some scientists are concerned that AI could at some point overtake human planning and thinking. And that is certainly one of the agenda items that will be discussed today as he's convening these top experts and researchers to talk about not just the opportunities uh, presented by AI, 
AI, but also the potential risks. And we've really seen the White House in recent weeks really uh, ramping up their attention uh, to this issue. The White House officials are meeting about two to three times a week uh, to discuss AI. President Biden himself has been extensively briefed on the issue. One official even telling me that he's experimented with programs like ChatGPT. Now, additionally, the White House Chief of Staff's office has also overseen this process to try to develop some decisive actions that they can try to roll out related to artificial intelligence in the coming weeks. So this is really an all-hands-on-deck moment as they're trying to address this issue. The president out in California today to hold that meeting. Okay. Arlette, thank you very much for the reporting at the White House. We'll follow it. CNN This Morning continues right now. An urgent search and rescue operation is now underway in the North Atlantic. The U.S. Coast Guard is searching for five people aboard a missing submersible that tours the Titanic wreckage. It is a race against time. You're fighting oxygen levels. We have to make sure that we're looking on both the surface, but then expanding into underwater search as well. I have every right to have those boxes. He had no right to those documents. It's just complete political spin on Trump's part. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. He clearly doesn't have an answer for this. I would be very concerned if that were part of his legal team. Republican officials in Kansas are on alert after at least 100 letters containing a suspicious white powder were sent to state lawmakers and public officials. The message reads, it is important not to choke on your ambition. So far, they found no biological agents of concern. It was quite terrifying. This is the stuff that you ultimately see in movies. Russia is launching new air attacks across Ukraine, targeting the capital, Kyiv. This says Russia has heavily mined the front lines and is sending more reservists into battle. Underscoring just how difficult Ukraine's counteroffensive is proving to be. This is going to be a long fight. Americans celebrating Juneteenth all across the country. I just can't believe we have a federal holiday finally recognizing the end of our enslavement. We've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. If people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. And it's up to us to do it. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. We'll get to that. And Juneteenth, just, you know, it's only been a federal holiday for two years yeah. now and what yesterday meant. Yeah, and there was a big concert on CNN last night. Last night. So we'll right. have a little bit of that for you throughout the show. Listen, right now though, the race is on to find a submersible that vanished while diving on the Titanic shipwreck. Five people were on board. The US and Canadian Coast Guards have launched an all out search with planes and ships and buoys equipped with sonar. The ocean at that point is about 13,000 feet deep mm. in that area. And as of yesterday afternoon, officials estimated the passengers might have had somewhere between 70 and 96 hours worth of air left if the sub is still intact. Now, this was a sightseeing expedition that costs a quarter million dollars a person. The passengers included a British billionaire explorer, explorer a Pakistani businessman and his son, uh, there are also reports by the CBC and CTV News in Canada that a famous French diver and Titanic expert was also on the sub. These are some of the last images of the submersible as it began its descent on Sunday morning. The deepest ever underwater rescue was less than 2,000 feet. 
So this could be an unprecedented rescue if Operation, uh, if the Coast Guard finds that sub. CNN National Correspondent Jason Carroll has the latest on the search from Boston. And I think that context, that comparison, mm -hmm. the deepest ever was 2,000. This could be as much as 13,000. What have you learned overnight? Yeah. Well, you can tell that uh, search and rescue crews are dealing with a number of challenges. Uh, the Boston Coast Guard uh, basically says that they're searching in an area that's extremely remote. They've reached out to experts in the field of deep sea exploration, uh, and they also realize at this point, time is simply just not on their side. We're doing everything that we can do uh, to locate uh, the submersible and rescue uh, those on board. Search and rescue teams from the United States and Canada are working around the clock in the North Atlantic to locate a lost submersible with five people on board. Search planes have been scanning the ocean's surface, sonar buoys deployed to try to detect any sound from the missing vessel. The location of the search is approximately 900 miles uh, east of Cape Cod uh, in a water depth of uh, roughly 13,000 feet. According to the Coast Guard, the submersible lost communication with its mothership, the Polar Prince, less than two hours into its descent Sunday morning as it ventured towards the wreckage of the Titanic. The company that operates the submersible on voyages to the Titanic, Ocean Gate Expeditions, releasing this statement. Our entire focus is on the well-being of the crew, and every step possible is being taken to bring the five crew members back safely. On board, businessman Hamish Harding, who is no stranger to adventure. I've always wanted to do this. Recently, he was a passenger on Blue Origin's June 2022 spaceflight. On Saturday, he posted on his Facebook page, I am proud to finally announce that I joined Ocean Gate Expeditions for their RMS Titanic mission as a mission specialist on the sub going down to the Titanic. Also on board, Pakistani businessman Shahzada Dawood and his son, Suleiman Dawood. Their family issuing a statement saying, we are very grateful for the concern being shown by our colleagues and friends and would like to request everyone to pray for their safety. According to Ocean Gate Expedition's website, the 21-foot, 23,000-pound submersible made of carbon fiber and titanium has up to 96 hours, four days, of oxygen for five people. Larry Daly, a Titanic expert, has been inside the 21-foot vessel. I was in the sub for uh, 12 hours. We have our own breathing system on board, and if that's maintained properly, like changing your uh, filter and your CO2 scrubber, you can stay down there for you know quite a few hours. In an interview with CBS last year, Ocean Gate Expedition CEO touting the submersible's safety. Everything else can fail. Your thrusters can go, your lights can go, you're still going to be safe. And also, according to OceanGate, there is some sort of an early warning detection system on board that's supposed to alert the pilot in case something goes wrong. Also on board, a system in place that's supposed to help the vessel resurface again if something goes wrong. But again, at this point, it's just unclear, Victor and Poppy, what exactly went wrong with this vessel. Back to you. Jason Carroll reporting for us. Thank you, Jason. For more on this, let's bring in deep sea explorer and oceanographer David Gallo. He is the senior advisor for strategic initiatives at RMS Titanic, Inc. David, thank you so much for being with us. Look, you've done this 
type of work for the better part of four decades. How likely is it that they will find this submersible in time before the oxygen runs out? Well, certainly, hi, Poppy. Uh, certainly, uh, time is against us at this point. And the only thing that uh, we can say uh, is that everything that can be done is being done. And that includes the Coast Guard at the surface, listening a bit beneath the surface, and then uh, assembling right now are some of the best robotic people with robots and ships uh, to respond right away if they do find that submarine. David, we have uh, the pictures of the submarine and it's pretty blue water. I mean, it, it is beautiful. But when we're talking 13,000 feet down, give our viewers the reality of what it actually looks like down there. It's a whole different world, Victor. Uh, normally a dive, you begin on the surface in a light blue, pretty color blue that we're familiar with. It takes two and a half hours to get to the bottom, roughly. And uh, you start to drift down slowly through that water column. You leave the blue behind. It gets medium blue, deep blue, dark blue, and then black for about two hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a place where it's been eternally cold and uh, pressure's building. So when you land, you're landing, as I said, almost on a, it's a very unfamiliar world where uh, uh, all sorts of uh, different kinds of creatures live and there's different kinds of landscapes. I was really struck, David, by this part of the CBS Sunday Morning Report, just, just from, from last year, by the journalist David Pogue. I want you to listen to one part of this. There's no GPS underwater. So the surface ship is supposed to guide the sub to the shipwreck by sending text messages. Turn 30 degrees right? Probably yeah, 30 degrees. But on this dive, communications somehow broke down. The sub never found the wreck. We were lost. We were lost for two and a half hours. Rush says he'll offer those passengers a free do-over next year. If they got lost and there's no GPS, how do you find this now? Well, uh, the thing about that is, I mean, that does happen. It's unfortunate that it happened with David Pogue. And uh, um, there's been no communication with the sub. So even if you're lost, there's usually communications back and forth with the sub. You just don't know exactly where you are and you hope the surface can tell you. Um, yeah, so there really, it's just in a way, the looking actively, listening a bit, but looking actively with sonars, a bit with cameras uh, to see if they can locate the sub. And, and they'll probably begin with the last known position of where the sub was last heard. Yeah. Let's put up the graphic again, showing just how deep the water is at the, uh, the wreck site of the Titanic. And in comparison, you see some of the, the uh, iconic buildings across the country. You see the height of, uh, I believe that's the Empire State Building. Um, David, my question to you, Grand Canyon as well. Um, we first met you, our first conversation was during MH370 when that disappeared. And I was surprised by how little we know about how much of the ocean, because the, the, the Titanic wreck is there, are we familiar with this part of the North Atlantic that we know the depths, we know what is there? Uh, we know it probably better than most places because we've been there, uh, but we're still learning things about it, about the currents that sweep through there, like underwater, almost like a wind that blows beneath the water, except it's water uh, from different uh, quadrants and from the north, from the east. We're learning about that. Uh, and learning about the animals that live in that spot. So, yeah, we know it better, but uh, there's no guarantees and there, there are always surprises.
you're a deep sea explorer, so you have a unique perspective and vantage to all of this that many of us don't. Can you speak to the mental toll of being inside that very small space with those people who obviously know now that something went terribly wrong? I, you know, Poppy, I can't imagine, and the entire community, you know, P.H. Narjale, a uh, colleague of mine, my, my closest colleague, colleague, and one of the best at this, uh, searching, uh, is on board that expedition. Um, so it's something we always think about as explorers and scientists that go to the deep. Yeah. Um, and we've always known something like this could happen, and now it's happened, but we're still pretty much in shock, the community is. Yeah. I hope it has a good ending. Of course, we all do. David Gallo, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Well, Special Counsel Jack Smith just scored a win in court. What does this mean for former President Donald Trump? And the Washington Post reports the FBI resisted launching a probe of Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection for more than a year. Why the Bureau had held back? It's coming up. Why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. It's Donald Trump offering up a new defense on why he didn't return classified documents that he was sorting at, or storing rather, at Mar-a-Lago. Maybe he was sorting through them. He said he had golf shirts there. He says he was too busy to look through all of it to separate his personal records. In that interview with Fox News' Brett Baer, Trump maintained his innocence a week after pleading not guilty to 37 criminal charges, including obstruction of justice. He was also asked about a key allegation in the indictment. But according to the indictment, you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more, not that I know of, but not that I know of. Joining us now, criminal defense attorney Stacey Richmond, national correspondent for The Washington Post, Philip Bump, and CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon. Let's start with the law, Stacey, because all of these law, uh, lies and shifting explanations politically mean one thing. But post-indictment, what's the role in the case? Well, the concern that you have is each day he's creating new evidence. So when the government eventually turns over all of his statements, each one of these new statements is going to be included. He is making the case harder and harder for his counsels because the counsel may have a theory of what to, how to proceed, and Trump is constantly shifting because he's constantly throwing out a new theory. This is a very dangerous situation. He is not a good client because he needs to follow the direction of counsel. He is not a good client. No. One Quote, should, One should remain silent in this situation, review the evidence, figure out what the positions are, yeah. and confer with counsel. Conferring with the world is not the optimal role of the defendant. Um, Brett Baer did, I, I think, a, a very important job of fact-checking mm -hmm. him in real time in that interview on a lot of different points, also making some news here. Um, let's listen to something else Trump said. This was about the Bedminster uh, assertion in the indictment that Trump waved this classified document around that he said was by General Milley that Milley says was not by him about Iran and any potential attack on Iran. Here's that exchange. 
There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just saying what the indictment says. Well, they, the recording people, and the look, people in the room who these testified. These people are very dishonest people. They're thugs. Philip, speak to what the indictment does actually say, because it quotes the former president on tape in his own words saying they're classified. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we have this tape. So essentially what happened is in June 2021, I believe it was, uh, Trump was sitting down to be interviewed by people who were writing an autobiography for one of his former chiefs of staff, and he has this conversation. So uh, our understanding is that it was someone on his side who was actually recording it because he wanted to make sure that he was being quoted correctly. Uh, and as such... We have to imagine the scenario. It's not just that Donald Trump is sitting here saying, oh, it's these newspaper articles, you know what you're talking about. It is, A, there is the recording, which, of course, would be presented in a court of law. But he's also sitting across the table from people, right? There are people in the room with him, both on his staff and these authors, all of whom presumably, or at least one of whom, is going to be called to testify and is going to sit on the stand and under oath say, actually, here's what happened. Here's what he was referring to. Here's what he had in his hand. Here's what that recording means. The odds are good. They're going to contradict what he just presented there. But of course, he's not making the case. He's not making a legal case. He understands that his fight is a political fight. If he gets elected president again, all this goes away. That's the fight that he's fighting in these conversations. Yeah, one of the people in the room might contradict him, but there's nothing to, to say that Trump won't contradict himself in, in another week or two and trying to explain what happened. No, as a matter of fact, put money on that. Yeah. Uh, he almost certainly will. He, he keeps trying out different lies in different contexts because that's what he does all the time. But what you saw in that interview uh, was a, a man unspooling. Uh, he was he was desperately trying to uh, play defense against what I think he still thought would be a friendly interview, but was, in fact, fact-checking him in real time. Um, and, and you saw he, he just clings to his lies like Linus with a blanket. It's all he's got. And so the con man looks increasingly pathetic when he does that, because it's contradicted by every established fact. Uh, John, let's switch gears here, because I really want your, your take on, I think this is pretty stunning from the, the Washington Post reporting um, overnight, that the Justice Department's senior officials there and at the FBI resisted requests for about a year to really probe former President Trump and his allies' actions in the days leading up to and on January 6th. And what is striking about this is part of the reason why, according to the Post, was because of their, quote, wariness about appearing partisan. Yeah, it, it, it is so old school. And it's a reminder that in some ways we've been having an unfair fight over the course of the Trump administration, its aftermath. It's always been sort of, you know, uh, sort of a Boy Scout versus somebody who, who doesn't play by any rules. Um, and in this case, you see the FBI being reticent to get involved in the investigation because they're concerned about the appearance of being political. They're trying to hold themselves above the fray. Because they've been and, called the deep state. Because they've been called the deep state and, and everything else. Uh, and it, I think it just shows that how much of our democracy, our democratic republic, is based on guardrails that are imposed by people who are trying to be honorable and care about perceptions. The amount of damage that can be done when people who don't care about honor, who don't care about those guardrails, can get in and start destroying things. Yeah, some fascinating reporting uh, from your colleagues there at The Post, Philip, in which they say that the, the effort initially was to work this like a mob case where you start at the bottom and see if there's a way up. But increasingly, they saw that there was no ladder that was going to take them right to the top. And there was some frustration throughout the department that sometimes trying not to appear political or partisan means you're not really doing the job. 
Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is an incredibly complicated thing occurring in a very unique scenario, mm-hmm. right? This is uh, when we're talking specifically at that time, at the very beginning of the Biden administration, we're talking primarily about the Capitol riot. We're not necessarily talking about things like the elector scheme, like the pressure that's being put on the Justice Department, in part because the full details of those weren't known yet. A lot of that emerged from the House Select Committee's work, right? So at that outset, you are trying to figure out, okay, how much can we actually charge Trump criminally with responsibility for what occurred at the Capitol? And of course, for for outsiders, it's easy to say, of course, this would not have happened without Donald Trump. That's different, as all of us are aware, you more than most, uh, uh, than actually being able to bring criminal charges against it. And so there is certainly some of it, which is just like, okay, we don't necessarily have an open and shut case here. As months progress, it becomes more clear the scale of what he's trying to do. They're still trying to figure it out. And then, of course, you have this documents case, which is you know, yeah. spelled out. It's like, you know, cobbled together in Legos very precisely, and you can you have this thing that you can seize, right? It's very different than the Capitol riot case, and so they move forward on this one, and that's what we've got. What's the significance, Stacey, of the magistrate judge signing off on this order that Jack Smith, the special counsel, requested, saying to defendant Trump, you cannot show any of this discovery material to the media. You can't show it to your allies. Obviously, those concerns, given classified information, et cetera. But it just seems like that would be an obvious thing for a defendant not to do, but he felt an order was necessary here. Well, it, it's it's not uncommon in many, many cases. So the fact that everyone is seizing upon like, oh my God, the court has issued this order to Trump. First of all, counsel conferred beforehand. All counsel agreed because it would but it would be issued regardless. I have in, in many, many cases, both state and federal, like it was issued in the state case in New York as well, this protect type of protective order. And it's a little bit, again, as the gentlemen have said, this is a really unique situation. We have this prosecution in the midst of a political campaign. And so, of course, they don't want things used improperly. Everything is for the case. I have a very different role than all of you that are commenting and, and, and quarterbacking and seeing what people are saying. Part of my job as a criminal defense attorney and his counsel will be is to look at the evidence, look what the government is presenting and assert the defenses. So our world is confined and the concept of what the jury is supposed to see is within the confines of the indictment and the evidence presented therein. All of this extra commentary is not to infect the jury. But of course, here we all are. And uh, we should expect there will be more extra commentary, as you put it. All right, John, Philip, Stacey, thank you all. Thank you. New overnight, Ukraine says Russia launched another massive air attack on Kyiv, saying that Iranian-made drones, quote, entered the capital in waves. We'll get the latest on Ukraine's counteroffensive. That's next. We're also following this urgent search this morning for five people on board a missing submersible near the wreckage of the Titanic. The new details we just learned ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. We are getting new details this morning about the desperate search for that submersible that disappeared during a sightseeing expedition to the Titanic shipwreck. CNN has just confirmed that the French submariner and ex-Navy officer Paul-Henri Nargolet is on board. That's according to his family. The other passengers include a British billionaire explorer, along with a Pakistani businessman and his son. As of yesterday afternoon, the Coast Guard said the passengers may have had about 70 to 96 hours worth of oxygen on board, if that sub were still intact. These are some of the last images of the sub on Sunday morning as it began its descent 
with five people on board. The ocean is about 13,000 feet deep at the site. The U.S. and the Canadian Coast Guards using planes and ships and buoys with sonar scouring the region about 900 miles east of Cape Cod. The U.S. Coast Guard commander who is overseeing this search, Rear Admiral John Mauger, just spoke to ABC News. Here's what he said. We have uh, a um, P-3 aircraft uh, from the Canadian Armed Forces that's been flying uh, during the last 24 hours and dropping sauna buoys, uh, listening to the sound. We also have vessels on scene uh, now that um, are uh, have the capability uh, to uh, listen with uh, their sonar. And so if uh, they are uh, making sound, uh, that's certainly one of the ways that we're going to use to uh, locate them. Ahead in our next hour, we will be joined by the Coast Guard Rear Admiral. You just heard from John Mauger. He's overseeing all of these search and rescue operations. New overnight, Ukraine says Russia launched another massive air attack on Kyiv using various Iranian drones. And this comes two weeks into Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia. President Zelensky says his troops have not lost any position so far. A senior Ukrainian official says that Kyiv has recaptured eight southern settlements in the last few weeks, but still the offensive operations have not yet gained the momentum that some were anticipating. CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton is with us now. Colonel, good to see you. Let's start with just framing the conversation and analyzing the effectiveness of the counteroffensive at this point. Can this analysis be as simple as succeeding, failing? Uh, just a couple of weeks in. Uh, not really, Victor, and good morning to you. The The real thing about this is that there is so much that's going on here uh, that it's really hard to determine exactly who's winning and who's losing. And, you know, when you take a look at historical comparisons, like, let's say, D-Day uh, back in 1944, it took a long time for Allied forces to actually go through all of France to actually conquer and reconquer that territory. So the Ukrainians have actually done pretty well in the last few weeks because what they've been able to do is is not only uh, capture uh, these eight settlements that you talked about right here, uh, but they've also been able to expand some of their operations. And as President Zelensky mentioned, they have not lost any territory to the Russians. And that's in spite of uh, some of the Russians' ability to move aircraft and artillery into areas and to uh, really uh, take a, a large piece of this front and uh, turn it into an artillery zone, a free fire zone, if you will, for them. I want to pull that thread a bit more about the Russian preparation. Uh, what do you know about uh, and what is your assessment of their readiness for this surge? So this is really interesting. You know, when you look at uh, some of the different uh, aspects of this, Victor, uh, you know, let's compare things, first of all, with what things were like back last year when Ukraine very quickly uh, captured uh, this area around Kharkiv. So they captured around 3,400 square miles. They're not doing that right now. And one of the reasons that they really can't do that is because of the trenches uh, and these things called dragon's teeth that the... Uh, that the Russians have put in place right here. So this is an example of that. There is also right here on the other side of the road. Uh, but what these things are doing is they're preventing tanks from moving forward in these areas. And plus what they also do is they force uh, an advance only along these paths right here. And that, of course, can be blocked up. So the Russians are far readier uh, than they were before uh, to control these areas. Uh, that makes it very difficult for the Ukrainians to move forward. 
forward in these cases. Mm. I know that you're concerned about uh, some demographic challenges and maybe changes in Ukraine that could make it difficult uh, for them to continue to defend. Explain that. So, yes, uh, that's that's a really good point, Victor, because when Ukraine gained its independence back in August of 1991 from the Soviet Union, it had a population of 52 million people. Right now, it's uh, somewhere around 43 plus million. That's not including movements by refugees uh, out of Ukraine, internally displaced people. Uh, so what this means is that they have a far fewer uh, population pool to pull from, uh, far less of a pool to pull from than they had uh, back when they first gained independence. So it's making it more difficult in some ways for them to really put uh, their defensive forces together. They can obviously do it, but they have a big demographic challenge, which is actually greater than Russia's demographic challenge at this point in time. What are you watching for in the near term to know about trends of where this is going? So let's take a look at the Eastern Front. So one of the key things that I'm looking at here, Victor, is what's going to happen around Bakhmut. Uh, this area right here is really been the scene of so many different uh, fighting uh, battles that have taken place over the last nine, ten months. Uh, it looks like the Ukrainians are able to gain some of these areas back. And if they can do that here, and then uh, if you can see what's happening down here in the Kherson area and the Zaporizhia area, what I'm looking at is is the Ukrainians possibly coming in this way and this way. And one of the key things to actually look at is when you look at those areas, plus the eight settlements right here uh, that they've been able to, uh, to capture in these particular areas, uh, you're looking at the Ukrainians possibly being able to move toward the Sea of Azov, which is this body of water right here. If they do that, then they can really cut this land bridge. And if they cut this land bridge, what that means is that they will have inflicted at least a tactical defeat on the Russians. If they can do that, this uh, counteroffensive will basically be a partial success. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you so much, sir. You bet, Victor, anytime. Well, this morning, the FBI is now involved after at least 100 suspicious letters were sent to Kansas public officials with white powder inside. One of those lawmakers will join us next. Well, authorities are on alert this morning after about 100 threatening letters with a white powder inside were sent to state legislators and public officials across the state of Kansas. Preliminary tests show that substance is harmless. Still, though incredibly scary, Republican State Representative Stephen Owen says he received one of the letters and believes the other recipients are also fellow Republicans. The letter to him read in part, quote, it's important not to choke on your ambition, close quote, and it was signed, your secret Despirer. Is that right? Do I have it right? Representative Stephen Owens joins us now. Do I have that right about who signed it? Yeah, you certainly do. And as I understand, uh, more than 100 letters at this time have been sent to Republican legislators and state officials throughout the state of Kansas. What did you think when you opened it? Well, at first, I was very much caught off guard uh, by the note, by its context, because it was very cryptic in that they used a local address to ensure that we as legislators believe that it came from a local constituent uh, and then certainly opened it. So these letters uh, were sent to Republicans uh, across the state. Do you know specifically if it's, it's, if it's legislation-centered, if it is ideologic, uh, ideologically centered? Why do you think you received one? 
Well, you know, if you look at this letter, uh, it says to honor your recent accomplishments. So it is my my personal belief that this probably has to do with um, some of the veto overrides that occurred in the Kansas legislature this year. We're a supermajority Republican in the House and the Senate, but we have a Democrat governor, mm-hmm. um, which uh, certainly leads to some differences of opinion. So let's dig into that a little bit more, if we could, because this year you mentioned those veto overrides. The state legislator, led by a majority of Republicans, has overturned nine of the Democratic governor, Laura Kelly's, vetoes. Some of them have focused on more controversial issues. Transgender rights has been uh, the subject of a few of those pieces of legislation. You have said, quote, there's a question whether maybe it's related to some of those vetoes that we overrode. Do you have any direct indication other than what that letter says? Uh, no, definitely no direct indication. Uh, but Kansas was the first in the nation to uh, legally define what a man and a woman is biologically uh, for others, for the state statutes that currently are on the books. And so uh, sometimes being the first uh, and and doing what our constituents sent us to Topeka to do um, could potentially lead to things like this. Mm-hmm. The initial tests of the uh, powder that was included uh, in the envelope have determined that it's not harmful do you have greater concerns for your safety now that you know you're one of this group that's been targeted by the letter? You know, personally, I do not. Uh, certainly concerned for other members of the legislature, uh, our families. If you really think about the implications, had this been biological, um, I have colleagues that open their mail at their table in their home. Mm-hmm. I happen to be in my truck at a stop sign when I open this. Um, you know, it, it's... It certainly is concerning, uh, and we will certainly be more vigilant, but it does nothing to deter um, doing what our constituents sent us to Topeka to do. Representative, we know the FBI is involved now. I mean, 100 letters is really scary. Have you gotten any update from the feds or local authorities in terms of do they think this is one person sending them? Is it more? Is it in-state? Is it out-of-state? We haven't received uh, any specific information like that. I know it's an ongoing investigation. Our KBI director, Tony Matiti, uh, is doing a fantastic job leading uh, local, state, and federal law enforcement as they attempt to identify uh, whoever this is or, or whomever. It could be multiple. I do know that the postmark, while it had a, a local Heston address in my case, because I live in Heston, the postmark was out of Kansas City. And so uh, I'm very confident in their ability to locate and apprehend um, this individual. Representative Owens, it sounds like, although this was shocking, that it doesn't change much for you. Do I have that right? That is 100 percent correct. It doesn't change anything for myself, my colleagues, uh, or our determination to do what we believe is best for the state of Kansas. Uh, We are even more resolved. And I think it's important for anyone out there that uh, that considers anything like this threats or threats of violence to realize that that does not change um, someone's political opinion. As a matter of fact, it makes them dig their heels in deeper and have stronger resolve to continue forward uh, and do the things that our constituents send us there to do. Representative Stephen Owens, please keep us posted. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, sir. Thank you very much. New overnight, CNN affiliate WABC is reporting that four people have been killed after a fire broke out at a New York City bike shop. At least two others are critically injured. Flames erupted just after midnight on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Firefighters pulled several people out of the building just above an e-bike shop as heavy smoke engulfed the area. 
Fire officials say when an e-bike catches fire, it's not a slow burn, uh, but more of an explosion and difficult to put out because of the lithium-ion batteries used. Yeah, very scary. This just in also scary moments for people in the air. Passengers on a flight from the Philippines to South Korea were on board when a man tried to open a plane door while they were still flying. Officials say this happened an hour into the trip when the man was behaving strangely. Flight attendants moved him to a seat near the door so they could keep an eye on him. And that's when he ran to the door, tried to open it. Fortunately, he failed. He was handed over to the police when the plane landed in Seoul. Just last month, you'll remember, on a different flight, this was in Korea, a man managed to actually open an Asiana Airlines exit door just before landing. New guidance says doctors should steer away from using a key indicator of body weight, the BMI. I've been saying this forever. I don't I've even I don't even like hearing about BMI. So can we ignore it now? We'll tell you what's <laughs> behind the change. Also later, this 619-pound blue marlin was disqualified from a multi-million dollar fishing tournament. I'll tell you why. So this is the measure of height and weight that some refer to as a scarlet letter. It's the BMI. Poppy's already laughing. We've been talking about it. He doesn't like it. I do not like it. (laughs) It's been used for decades in health assessments, but now the American Medical Association is warning it has significant limitations with a history of use for racist exclusion. Mm -hmm. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here to explain. So the BMI, it's everywhere. Everywhere. I am well aware of mine. Um, What (laughs) are doctors saying is is wrong with it? Well, probably we all shouldn't know our BMIs like so well, right? Should or should not? Should not. I mean, it is not supposed to be a measure of individual health risk. And that is the increasing push is to stop using it as the only measure. I mean, the BMI, if you look at the history of it, this was something that was come up with in 1832 by a Belgian mathematician trying to sort of characterize the average man. So this was done in primarily white European populations. It wasn't until the 1970s that it was really sort of validated as this uh, measure of fat across the population. That was done in men. So this is a measure that really looks at the population level, not at the individual level. So the American Medical Association is out now with a recommendation to try to move beyond this. The problem is that this is really used everywhere, not just as a screener for obesity, but also as sort of a gatekeeper for weight loss drugs. It can affect whether you can access fertility treatment or different kinds of surgeries. And it can even come into play in life insurance rates. And when you have these differences across groups, uh, racial groups, age groups, sexes, that can actually play into some discrimination where if you're only looking at BMI, you might not be actually assessing people's real health risk. Absolutely, especially with so many of those things predicated on whether you can get certain things, what your insurance rate's going to be. Is there a recommendation from the AMA on what doctors should use instead? The problem is that there's not one perfect measure of body fat, and so they recommend a number of different things. One is a measurement of so-called visceral fat. That's the sort of fat around the middle that can be more dangerous than fat that's carried on the hips or thighs. Um, Also, waist circumference, which is another way of kind of looking at that. But then doctors tell me what's really important is risk for metabolic syndrome. Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have prediabetes? Things like that. And they do say that BMI can be a helpful indicator to at least look for those things. We can't toss it out the window, but we should not be depending on it as the sole important indicator of our health. Best story of the day, Meg. Thank you, really. (laughs) There's there's hope for us. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate it. Meg Terrell, thanks thanks so much. Thanks. The NBA draft is just two days away, and the teenage sensation expected to go at number one has now arrived in the U.S. Victor Wembayama is the best 
NBA prospect since LeBron James. Some think he's the best ever. He's seven foot five, 19 years old, a Frenchman touching down in the U.S. yesterday ahead of the draft. Wembayama mobbed by fans and autograph hounds. He signed as he uh, made his way through the Newark airport. Someone even already has a Spurs jersey there waiting for him. Wembayama, uh, and Wemby as some call him, uh, said he was a little surprised at how many people were there. I don't know how they knew my, what flight I was on, but, you know, it's fun. Seeing, seeing that you can have such impact on people. San Antonio will be taking Wimbayama number one Thursday night. One Spurs fan is ready. Check out this uh, Wemby haircut. <laughs> Carving the man's image into the back of his hair there. Oh, my gosh. That's so good. Yeah, that's commitment. That's oh. commitment. You got to keep that fresh. You can't totally let Wimbayama get a little raggedy day <laughs> five or six. You need to come back every three days and keep it fresh. Oh, I love that. All right, well, it is a race against time this morning to find the missing submersible. With five people on board, the U.S. Coast Guard commander in charge says they searched an area about the size of Connecticut. He joins us next with the latest details. We'll also speak to a man who made a similar trip to the Titanic wreckage and can shed light on what the crew may be experiencing as they're waiting for someone to rescue them. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us on this Tuesday. I'm very happy to have my friend Victor Blackwell. Made the journey up from Atlanta to be with us. Good morning. Happy to be here. What a morning. Yeah, there's a lot going on. What a morning. A desperate search underway for a tourist submersible that was diving on the Titanic shipwreck. We have new information this morning about five people on board, including a famous French diver. Donald Trump is offering up a new defense on why he didn't turn over those classified documents. He says he was too busy to go through the boxes. New this morning, French police just raided the headquarters of the Paris 2024 Olympic Organizing Committee. We'll tell you why. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Search and rescue teams are racing against time now to find a submersible that vanished while diving on the Titanic shipwreck. Now, these are some of the last images of the sub as it descended with five people on board Sunday morning. The U.S. Coast Guard says the passengers would have about four days worth of air. The ocean is around 13,000 feet deep at this site. The U.S. and the Canadian Coast Guards have been using planes and ships and buoys with sonar to search for any signs of the submersible. The commander overseeing the operation says they have scoured an area roughly the size of Connecticut. They did that overnight. This was a tourist sightseeing expedition. It cost a quarter million dollars a seat. We know the passengers included a British billionaire explorer, also a Pakistani businessman and his son, and the family of a famous French diver and Titanic expert is now confirming that he was also on the submersible. Joining us now on the phone is Rear Admiral John Mauger. He is the first district commander for the U.S. Coast Guard. He is overseeing the search and rescue operations for all of this. Rear Admiral, thank you very much for being with us at this moment. Are you hopeful, are you optimistic that these five people will be found alive and you're, you'll be able to bring them to the surface? Good morning, Poppy. 
Uh, our, our thoughts as we continue on with this uh, search are with the uh, crew members and their families right now. Uh, if there's any chance, uh, we're going to work as hard as uh, we can to make sure uh, that uh, we can uh, locate that submersible. And so we've been working uh, through the night with a uh, broad group of partners to bring uh, all capabilities to bear, uh, looking on both the surface and now expanding to a subsurface search uh, in the area. So you searched overnight an area the size of Connecticut. Are you saying you're expanding that to an even wider part of we're, the ocean? We're expanding our, uh, Poppy, thanks. We're expanding our capabilities uh, on site. And so uh, while uh, a lot of the search to date has been primarily focused on the surface of the water uh, and uh, our aircraft flew uh, patterns uh, in combination with uh, Canadian aircraft and, and New York Air National Guard, uh, aircraft flew patterns uh, that roughly about the size of uh, the state of Connecticut. But today we uh, now have uh, underwater uh, search capability on scene, and so we're going to be using that uh, to uh, see if we can locate uh, the submersible in, in, the, in the water. What was the last time there was any contact with the submersible? Uh, we understand from uh, Ocean Gate Expedition that the last time uh, that uh, they were in contact with the submersible was um, about uh, an hour and 45 minutes into uh, the dive on uh, Sunday. You told NBC News this morning that the company Ocean Gate Expedition is actually leading the search. That was surprising to hear. Is that correct? And if it is, can you explain why? Sure. So uh, in my, my lead planner for uh, the Coast Guard goes by the title of the SAR Mission Coordinator, the Search and Rescue Mission Coordinator. And that's because we don't have all the capabilities uh, to bear uh, within the Coast Guard to affect a uh, search uh, in this area. And so we work very closely to bring in uh, leading technical expertise as part of a unified command. And so I met with members of the unified command uh, last night, including including uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, the Canadian Coast Guard, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, and Ocean Gate Expeditions. And in this case, uh, Ocean Gate Expeditions uh, knows the site uh, the best. They know where uh, their uh, submersible was operating. And so uh, they're setting uh, priorities uh, for uh, the uh, diving for the ROV that's on site. We know the identity now, four of the five passengers on board. Can you confirm the identity of the fifth? Uh, I'm not confirming the identity of any of uh, the, the personnel on board at this point. Uh, you know, again, our thoughts are with uh, the family members uh, and the crew members involved here. And so we want to uh, respect uh, their privacy as, as we continue on with the search. We're focused uh, on the search efforts and trying to locate the submersible. Of course, that's understandable. If you are able or anyone on these teams is able to locate the submersible, what is the plan to bring it to the surface? All of our efforts right now are focused on uh, the search uh, and, and locating uh, of the submersible. Within uh, the Unified Command, we have technical experts that are uh, working to understand uh, what uh, uh, types of casualties or what types of issues might have caused the submersible to lose contact and, and deviate from a uh, dive plan. And so we're working through that. Can you get oxygen into it before you would bring it to the surface? Poppy, at, at this point, uh, we're, we're focused on uh, the search aspect of, of uh, this, uh, and we're bringing those technical expert, 
to understand what kinds of capabilities uh, uh, may be needed and, and getting those capabilities to the site. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger, thank you very much. Good luck. Good luck from all of us to all of you and the teams. Thank so, you, Bobby. What's it like being inside that vessel? A CBS report from last year gave us a look. Inside, the sub has about as much room as a minivan. So this is not your grandfather's submersible. <laughs> we only have one button, that's it. It should be like an elevator. You know, it shouldn't take a lot of skill. We can use these off-the-shelf components. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! I mean, it seems quaint in the story and the way it was presented, but now knowing yeah. that you've got five people there and just maybe two days worth of air left, it's not as uh, laughable. Let's go to Gabe Cohen, um, who was on board this submersible in 2018. Gabe, give us some context of the space, the size. I mean, you're there here. Imagine you and four others. Um, what can you tell us from, from being inside it? Yeah, so, Victor, to be clear, I was on board uh, above ground or on on the surface, uh, not not in water. But uh, sure. I did several stories on OceanGate during my time reporting in Seattle. And in 2018, I did that story that you're seeing uh, on Titan, on this submersible that's now missing. We went to OceanGate headquarters in Everett, Washington. We interviewed the crew, uh, including CEO Stockton Rush, and we sat inside that vessel and what struck me, some of which, which you saw in that uh, CBS report, was how simple some of the technology seemed. It is this tiny vessel. It's very cramped. Uh, it's small. It can only fit five people on board. And it's operating, as you saw, operated, uh, as you saw, by a gaming controller, what essentially looks like a PlayStation controller. And yet the company was confident that this vessel could safely make this remarkable journey, that it could dive 13,000 feet into the ocean and handle 150 million pounds of pressure at the ocean floor. The company's CEO, Stockton Rush, told me that the pressure vessel, that it's a carbon fiber structure uh, of Titan, could handle that pressure no problem, that they had not cut corners when it came to costs or when it came to safety. Uh, in, in fact, in all of my interviews, uh, every OceanGate crew member, including the CEO, talked about safety and talked about how, how confident they were in this technology. They said they'd worked with NASA and worked with Boeing to design Titan. Now, that said, we have since learned that Titan has had some communication issues in the past, that they lost communication with support crew uh, on expeditions before. That CBS News report uh, indicated that last year the vessel was lost for more than two and a half hours, unable to get messages from the surface, which they rely on when they're out in the ocean Gabe, to figure out where they're going because there is no GPS on board. I'm glad you, you brought up that fact that it has gotten lost before. Here's that part of the CBS reporting. There's no GPS underwater. So the surface ship is supposed to guide the sub to the shipwreck by sending text messages. Turn 30 degrees right? Probably, yeah, 30 degrees. But on this dive, communications somehow broke down. The sub never found the wreck. We were lost. We were lost for two and a half hours. Rush says he'll offer those passengers a free do-over next year. Do, do you know from your reporting, Gabe, if there was any sort of backstop for a situation like that that got lost? 
Well, that's what we're trying to figure out right now. Uh, we've reached out to OceanGate trying to figure out uh, what safety precautions uh, were put in place, what sort of mechanisms uh, to be able to reach uh, support crews or first responders in the case uh, in case the vessel got lost. But at this point, we really don't know what newer tools might have been put in place or what sort of emergency beacon might be on board. We have not heard about anything like that. But again, we're trying to get that information from OceanGate, and at this point, uh, they haven't said. You know, if we were talking about a plane or a ship, we'd search for regulation. We've yeah. searched for inspection records. We search for, you know, oversight uh, uh, evidence. I want to put up on the screen uh, what the, the company says on their website about certifications and regulation. It's, it's pretty broad here, but they say by definition, innovation is outside of an already accepted system. However, this does not mean that OceanGate does not meet standards where they apply, but it does mean that innovation often falls outside of the existing industry paradigm. So, Gabe, you know not just the vessel, but the company. Are they subject to government oversight, to inspections, to regulation? What do you know? Well, we're looking into that right now. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, the, the company really stressed that as far as they see it, regulation hasn't caught up with innovation. And they have said their their uh, vessels are not classed, as they put it. Um, but we really don't know. And we're trying to dig up what sort of regulation there might be on an underwater vessel the way uh, there would be on an airplane, something, you know, flying into space. So uh, that it, those are answers we're currently looking for. Gabe Cohen, thank you very much for your unique perspective. It really informs all your reporting on this because you've been inside of one of these. Appreciate it. This just into CNN. French police raiding the headquarters of the Paris 2024 Olympic Games organizing committee. Investigators tell CNN this is tied uh, to an investigation into alleged embezzlement and corruption. Let's go to Melissa Bell live in Paris. Melissa, quite stunning allegations here. What are you learning? And pretty dramatic raids, Poppy. They took place across several sites here in Paris. Uh, this morning, we learned the 2022 uh, Paris Organizing Committee says it is cooperating fully with investigators. As you say, two different investigations. One uh, that was launched in 2017, looking at the investigating committee that's looking at allegations of uh, embezzlement of public funds, favoritism when it comes to the awarding of uh, contracts. Uh, the second investigation is targeting the company, the public body poppy that is responsible for a lot of the construction, the infrastructure work that's going on here in the French capital, even now ahead of those games. And it also is looking at allegations launched in 2022 of favoritism when it comes to the awarding uh, of contracts uh, and uh, that sort of thing. So pretty serious allegations. We don't know yet uh, what exactly they're looking for, just that this happens within uh, the framework of those investigations. These kind of raids quite common. Of course, they go in without announcing that they're coming in and hoping in the hope of finding the documents uh, that they're looking for. But certainly with just over a year to go to the start of these games, so keenly anticipated here in France, uh, not uh, what the organizing committee would have been hoping for. In fact, Tony Estanguet, the French uh, Olympic champion that is at the helm of the committee, had said at the start that he really intended for these to be exemplary games yeah. uh, for the time being. Uh, that is not off to a terribly auspicious start, Poppy. It's not. Melissa Bell, live for us in Paris. Thank you. There's new reporting from The Washington Post on why the FBI held back on investigating Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection for more than a year. Plus, former President Trump offering up a new reason for why he didn't hand over those classified documents. 
And well, why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things. Uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more. Not that I know of, but not that I know of. But everything was declassified. Remarks from Donald Trump on Fox News last night in this interview trying to justify why he did not hand over those boxes of classified documents after repeated requests from investigators. Meantime, a magistrate judge has barred both Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nauta, from disclosing information in the discovery materials given to their legal teams in the case. Our Caitlin Poland joins us live from Washington with more. Caitlin, good morning to you. How much, let's begin with that interview. Uh, if you're any defense lawyer, in America watching right now, you're thinking, oh my gosh, why is he talking? But he is. Yeah. So, Poppy and Victor, there's a reason why uh, defendants are warned that anything that they can say after their arrest can be used against them in a court of law. We'll have to see what the Justice Department does with these sorts of comments from Donald Trump. Uh, but I don't know any defense attorney who would say that this offers a valid explanation for why Donald Trump had these boxes and didn't respond fully to the subpoena, keeping many, many classified records in his possession after the, the, the National Archives and the Justice Department and a grand jury sought them back. Uh, when he was asked about that subpoena on Fox News last night by Brett Baer uh, and why he wasn't handing them over right away, here is what Trump said to that. Well, why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. So again, let's tick through this. He has the boxes. He's saying that. He knew he had them. He's saying that. He wanted them. He wanted to see them, wanted them moved. And he wasn't ready to respond to the subpoena immediately, uh, apparently by the deadline. That is all part of the allegations that are charged in this case, the Justice Department says, is against the law that he knowingly retained these boxes and then tried to obstruct the investigation, refusing to hand them over under the subpoena uh, demands. And so that all is going very likely to be part of this case. And another thing Trump says that's quite interesting is he says that he wanted to determine what was personal versus not personal. That's all supposed to be done uh, well before yeah. this period of time, after before he's leaving the White House. So, Caitlin, the special counsel has the documents investigation, also the January 6th investigation. And there is new reporting from The Washington Post about why the FBI waited more than a year to investigate Trump for his role uh, in the 1-6 Capitol attack. Why? Well, some of the timeline is fuzzy here, but what we know is that the Washington Post is now shedding light on some conversations that were taking place very soon after the Capitol attack in January of 2021. And soon after that Capitol attack, uh, there apparently was this, this very strong interest to go hard 
four people at the very top. Now, the Justice Department ultimately decided to take a different approach, essentially, to this investigation, not one that barred them from looking at Trump, but one that would work its way up the ladder, right? So start with the hundreds of rioters they knew that they needed to be prosecuting, then look at possible financial crimes, support of those rioters in political circles. We know that was something that they did early. And then as they continued working, we know now, uh, and including uh, just a year after the riot, that the Justice Department was looking into the fake electors, people in political circles that were trying to keep Donald Trump in power. And so uh, there is a lot of hindsight here, the potential that people now will say, we didn't start early enough within the Justice Department looking at Donald Trump. And make no mistake, Donald Trump is being investigated related to January 6th, and that investigation has moved extremely fast in the way that investigations mm-hmm. tend to move. Caitlin Polans, thank you very much for the reporting from Washington. All right, let's bring in now CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon and CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, let me start with you. Often we have seen that the argument in front of the cameras for Donald Trump is not the same argument made in the courtroom. He's not under oath with Brett Baer. How much does this jeopardize, damage potentially the defense? It's all bad news for Donald Trump. No, he's not under oath in front of Brett Baer, but all of that is admissible in court. Absolutely. Prosecutors can play that clip. And if we look at what he said last night, it's an admission. It's an excuse wrapped up within an admission. If you're a prosecutor, you say, wonderful. Now the following things are admitted and undisputed. He knew the documents were there. We knew that already, but here he nice and cleanly sort of admits it. He knew what was in those documents. He went through them with his own hands. He knew they contained classified and national defense information. All of that is potentially in play at a trial. All of that has now been admitted. The excuse also just doesn't measure up. He had two and a half years. You don't get the prerogative of just no. casually going through this, especially when there's been a subpoena. Yeah, you don't, you don't get to say, I'm, I'm too busy to comply with yeah. your subpoena. That, you know... That doesn't fly, even for a former president. I thought one of the things that was so striking in that interview that Brett Baer did, I think it was a really important interview, the fact-checking in real time, Mm -hmm. all of it, when he listed off all of the people that Trump hired who have turned on him, who, who he says now are terrible, he listed off all of these people who are no longer allies of the president. It was notable... In the political aspect, but I also wonder just in the legal aspect of all of this, how significant it is that all of these people around the president during this critical time have turned on him. I'm so glad you raised that portion of the interview because I think it's so key um, to sort of piercing the veil uh, around around Donald Trump. You know, he always hire only the best people. And what what the Baird then listed all the people of his cabinet who are running against him, who are warning explicitly he cannot be president. He should not be president. He cannot be trusted with national security information. Bill Barr, John Kelly, Mike Pompeo, goes on and on. On and on on the whole list. And, and, you know, Bill Barr has a new op-ed in the free press which lays out, uh, particularly to Trump supporters, why this is all BS. Uh, Why, why, you know, Trump's defenses are are BS. And at some point you wonder, uh, at what point will his supporters, his really hardcore supporters who are deeply invested uh, in in their own ego in Donald Trump's uh, lies, which I think you could objectively call them that, um, if the people who knew Trump best are warning that he is a threat to national security, are warning that he is not telling them the truth, that they're being treated as marks and dupes and fools, at what point that will sink in? 
Um, and, and I think that's part of just the, the absence of character witnesses, the people who knew Trump best saying this man is unqualified as a matter of character and security to be president. It's also a dynamic that you see play out at trials because the witnesses against a person typically are not strangers. They're usually people who knew or worked with or for the person. And so we're going to see that here. When people testify in Mar-a-Lago, perhaps someday in another case, Trump's going to say they're no good, they're liars, they have bad motives. And the response will be, well, <laughs> they're here to tell the truth. Yeah, Secretary Esper was on with us yesterday mm-hmm. making the case, but admitting that it wasn't getting through to a big part of the mm-hmm. GOP base. Let's move to the Washington Post yeah. reporting. And uh, the reporting that DOJ didn't actively investigate January 6th for 15 months. And I think the overall narrative was they were concerned about the, the optics, yeah. that they didn't want to seem partisan because there was still the mm-hmm. residue of the Russia investigation of Clinton emails. Your assessment of what you read. Look, it's a failure by the Justice Department. I don't think there's any way around it. Yes, they're making up for lost time now. Yes, the pace of this investigation has picked up markedly, especially since Jack Smith took over. But we discussed it at the time. For the first year and a half, DOJ was allergic, categorically allergic to looking at the real power sources. Yes, They did and had to go after the people who actually stormed the Capitol. But those are not either or propositions. You can do both. DOJ has 10,000, literally 10,000 federal prosecutors. They should have aimed, yes, at the people who stormed the Capitol, and they should have aimed high right away. John, as Ellie has pointed out, there's a real cost not for DOJ of not getting to those witnesses first Mm -hmm. in terms of. And what's so interesting about the Washington Post reporting is that it says that they really for fear of looking political, didn't go directly after former President Trump and his closest allies because of that. It shows that this is the opposite of a witch hunt. This has been about due process and indeed a concern about the appearance of impropriety on the part of DOJ and the FBI in particular. And and I think it just it goes to show that a lot of times this has been an asymmetric fight. This has been sort of Boy Scouts versus mob bosses, people who are willing to do anything and other people who are trying to uphold not only the law, but the, being allergic to the appearance of impropriety. And finally, I think in the result of the hearings, this information came to a head. Uh, and now we'll see. I mean, these seditious conspiracy convictions that have been occurred are really significant, very hard to get legally. And they point the finger at Donald Trump. We'll see whether that additional step gets taken. But I think it just goes to show... What that additional this, step? Whether Trump is, is in, indicted for, uh, you, know, you know, inciting January 6th. Yeah. Um, as many of the people in their defense who've been charged with seditious conspiracy say that he did. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think it goes to show that this, is, this has been, it, it, this is about the rule of law and people inside the organizations who are deeply concerned about the appearance of being p- political uh, and, and are reluctant to take the step. But if we take the step, it'll be because the facts demand it. It's a great point. It's almost an anti-witch hunt. I mean, yes. they, they were so reluctant, scared, whatever you want to call it, yeah. that they refused to even think about Trump until a year, year and a half later. 21 months yeah. until Director mm-hmm. Ray got his first briefing on, on uh, the investigation. All right, John, Ellie, thank you both. We're following this really urgent search this morning for a missing submersible that was headed to the Titanic wreckage. We're going to be joined by a friend of one of the five people inside that vessel. Plus the cricket infestation in Nevada. (laughs) Ew! Yeah, it'll make your skin crawl. And loud. This morning, a massive interagency search is underway for the Titan vessel. That's the tourist sub with five people on board that disappeared on a trip to view wreckage of the Titanic. One of those five passengers was British billionaire and explorer Hamish Harding. 
He owns a company called Action Aviation. He was also aboard Blue Origin's June 2022 space launch. Joining us now to discuss is Hamish's friend, Janneke Mickelson. Uh, Janneke, thank you for being with us. Um, I can only imagine, uh, as we watch the clock, um, what you are feeling. Tell us first about Hamish. What do we need to know about him? Hamish is larger than life. He lives exploration. Uh, he is an explorer to the core of his soul. He has been to the bottom of planet Earth in the Mariana Trench to challenge a deep. He's even been in space. We circumnavigated the planet together over the North and South Pole and set a world speed record. He has been to the South Pole and the North Pole and now recently um, the Titanic. I know he inspired your exploration career, right? Hamish, Hamish was the one who believed in me and actually gave me the opportunity to be a commercial payload specialist on board the flight mission One More Orbit. We were an eight-man crew of aviators, cosmonauts, and astronauts, and I was the only civilian. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Poppy and I were talking about how we would feel um, yeah. waiting there, but Hamish, you describe as an explorer. Right? He knows the risks there. What do you imagine he is feeling that he is prepared for uh, this moment as crews are searching for him? Hamish is an inspiration. He has taught me a lot in exploration. He will be calm and collected. He will work through the emergency procedures together with the crew. He is also an experienced submersible pilot from going down to the Mariana Trench with Victor Ruskovo. So he will be a valuable asset to the crew and helping motivate the crew as well, if morale is low. One of the things that Hamish posted on Facebook before he went is about the weather situation and just sort of how it's been all year. And he said, due to the worst winter in Newfoundland in 40 years, this mission is likely to be the first and only manned mission to the Titanic in 2023. Since you know him so well, he doesn't sound like someone who would have taken this if there were bad weather, if he had any hesitation. Is that right? Hamish would have taken the risk. I mean, there's many times you go places and the weather prevents you from achieving your goal. Um, This was actually a lucky weather window and the opportunity was clear and I believe the staff saw it as safe. I don't think we're facing a weather issue. I think maybe it's a mechanical issue. What is your uh, biggest concern, Janneke? My biggest concern is that Hamish and the rest of the crew aboard a Titan are trapped uh, in a metal can at the bottom of the ocean where um, the atmospheric pressure is 400 times that of here at ground level. There is no way we could possibly have a manned rescue at that sort of depth. My fear is that they cannot self-rescue and appear to the surface by themselves. Because of the conditions that deep. We we just asked the rear admiral of the Coast Guard who's leading the search, what's the plan if you find it? And he essentially said, you know, we're not there yet. Is there any way you know of that something this deep could be brought to the surface if you can't do a manned rescue? Uh, So this submersible, as I understood it from what Hamish told me, is that it is a self-rescue vessel. It is built with seven different systems uh, of 
uh, unloading its ballast so it can drop weight and therefore then um, ascend to the surface by itself. The only way it couldn't do that is if it was trapped, for instance, in the wreck of Titanic, or maybe something as simple as a fishing net. And I hope it's something simple so an ROV could come and rescue them and therefore they'd be able to self-rescue and ascend on their own. Wow. Sounds like you spoke with Hamish specifically about this, uh, this exploration, this trip. Did he express any concern about safety? We did not speak about this trip uh, because uh, it was seen as a smaller expedition. The Mariana Trench, we went through in detail. That is an eight-hour ascent and then an eight-hour descent. Mm. It is a far more dangerous mission and also his space exploration as well, where actually the rocket blew up on the platform on the next launch. Um, the Titanic doesn't seem anywhere near as dangerous so we'd only gone through the submersible of the Mariana Trench dive in great detail, and the same rules will apply for the Titanic dive. Janneke Mikkelsen, you helped us understand this so much better, but also helped us get to know your very good friend Hamish as well. We, we all hope to be able to get to hear from him very soon. We're hoping for the best, and thank you. All right, happening today, special counsel John Durham will meet behind closed doors with the House Intel Committee after last month's report suggesting the FBI should not have launched a full probe into the Trump campaign and Russia. We'll discuss the significance ahead. But before we go to break, NASA's Juno spacecraft captured a stunning photo of Jupiter struck by a neon green lightning bolt shining through the planet's thick clouds. This epic image was taken on Juno on the 31st flyby at nearly 20,000 miles. Scientists are trying to understand the many facets of Jupiter, including its massive storms and exactly how lightning events even occur there. She listens like spring and she talks like June. Today, special counsel John Durham will meet with members of the House Intelligence Committee. This meeting will happen behind closed doors. Of course, it comes after his report was released earlier this month, arguing the FBI should never have launched a full investigation into connections between the Trump campaign and Russia during the 2016 election. Zachary Cohen joins us now. Uh, it's great to have you. You know this inside and out. This report was years in the making. Now he's going to talk to the House Intel Committee before he speaks publicly about it. Yeah, that's right, Poppy. It's important to remember that John Durham was appointed by Trump's then attorney general four years ago to investigate the origins of the Russian investigation. And it wasn't only, it wasn't until last month that he put out this report that was really critical of the FBI, but wasn't really full of the bombshells that Republicans and Trump himself have been promising um, while the investigation was ongoing. Now, today is the first opportunity that lawmakers are going to have to sit down with Durham and discuss his report as well as a classified appendix. That's why this meeting is happening behind closed doors. And, you know, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, told some reporters the other day that he wants to go through um, some possible recommendations for reforming the FBI with Durham today. It'll be interesting to see what Democrats want to ask Durham, um, given the two very different um, interpretations of his report. But, yes, it's the first time that lawmakers are really going to have to question Durham directly since he put out his report. And he's scheduled to testify publicly tomorrow. What's the uh, influence potentially of what happens today on that public testimony on Wednesday? 
Yeah, Victor, while the House Intelligence Committee has been preaching uh, bipartisanship since they formed, uh, the House Judiciary Committee, which Durham will testify in front of um, tomorrow, is a little bit more uh, politicized. And it's led by Chairman Jim Jordan, who has really been a key ally for uh, former President Donald Trump in um, going, basically trying to relitigate a lot of his investigations, trying to investigate the investigators. So potentially some political fireworks tomorrow when Durham testifies publicly um, after his closed door meeting today. Okay, Zachary Cohen, thank you very much for the reporting. Tropical Storm Brett, the second named storm of this early Atlantic hurricane season, is churning in the Atlantic with maximum sustained winds of 40 miles per hour. Forecasters say it could become a hurricane as soon as tomorrow as it pushes closer to the Windward Islands. Let's bring in meteorologist Derek Van Dam in the CNN Weather Center. Uh, third week of June. This is early, Derek. Yeah, this is not your average season. This is not your average satellite loop that you would normally see in the middle of June. This is something we would normally see, let's say, August and September closing in on the peak hurricane season. We've got not only Tropical Storm Brett, which you can see there, another disturbance waiting behind it that's expected to develop here in the coming hours and days as well. But let's focus on the more immediate threat, Tropical Storm Brett. 40 miles per hour wind. You can see uh, both disturbances. The uh, one behind Brett's going to curve to the north. We're going to focus in on Brett as it heads towards the Windward Islands. And this is incredible because look at the water temperatures here. They're running about three to five degrees above average where you see that shading of orange. And because the water temperatures are so warm, we're seeing this early season development. Hence the not so typical start to the hurricane season. This is the forecast track. National Hurricane Center does have this becoming a minimal Category 1 hurricane by Thursday morning, but then you start to notice some weakening in the storm system, and that is because it is going to for, uh, be forced into a lot of sheer and dry air. So what that's going to do is help uh, kind of de-strengthen the storm as we head into the second half of the work week, but nonetheless, it will still pose a threat to the Eastern Caribbean going forward. The other major story we are following is the excessive heat that is going to yet again challenge the power company across the Deep South, particularly into Texas. Texas. Excessive heat warnings. This was pretty astounding. Yesterday in San Angelo, they had a temperature of 111. That ties the hottest temperature that San Angelo has ever recorded in the state's history. That is just incredible. 120 degrees for Corpus Christi. That is what it'll feel like today. That is the heat indice. So extremely warm temperatures, especially when you factor in the humidity. And uh, the relief really comes to the second half of the work week. That's when we start to see some rain settle in. You can see temperatures dropping to a cool, balmy 93 in Houston. Jeez. Wow. Dangerous <laughs> temperatures Probably. for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Derek. All right. All right. This next Good. story is going to bring a little crawl to your skin, a little crunch under your sneaker. Swarms of Mormon crickets are invading the community of Elko, Nevada. Locals say the cricket migration is really a rite of passage this time of year, but it has never been this intense. When we looked out here, it, the whole wall was just covered. That really, really, really freaked me out. It causes depression, anxiety, you feel super violated. You, when you're inside the house, it sounds like it's raining because they just randomly let go of wherever they're hanging onto and drop. Oh, that's fun. They just jump off the wall. Uh, the crickets don't bite, they don't sting, but they do destroy crops and other vegetation. They also create a, a driving hazard because, here's the detail you want with your cereal, as their bodies are crushed by car tires, they make the road slippery. A state, and, yeah, we got an ew from the other side of the studio. The state entomologist says they won't be going away soon as they seem to be adapting to Elko's natural habitat. Friends for life. They've also been reported in Idaho and Oregon. So y'all get ready. 
Do you, you have a particular aversion to crickets? No, I don't have an aversion to crickets. Um, I don't like the things that don't, it, I can get flying, I get that, I can follow a path. But if they just jump, jump off the wall, <laughs> that's a problem. You. I do not blame you. Also, the big fish didn't get away, but the big prize did. The crew of the boat Sensation pulled in a 619 pound blue marlin at a tournament off the coast of North Carolina. It took more than six hours to reel it in. And they thought they'd reeled in a more than $3 million prize, but tournament officials disqualified this whopper because a shark had chomped part of its underside near the tail. Apparently, your marlin can't be maimed or mutilated. Seriously? The winning catch went to another boat crew. Their marlin weighed a mere 484 pounds. So I lose points because I don't have all of the 619-pound marlin. I don't understand it, but I don't understand a lot about fishing tournaments. All right. Environmental lawyer and anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is challenging President Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. What are his chances? Harry Enton is here with this morning's number. Is he still polling at like 20%? Yeah. Really interesting. There was a really interesting year. Does Democrat Robert F. Kennedy Jr. have a chance of beating President Biden in the primaries? He has been posting fairly strong poll numbers. It looks like he may have hit a plateau, we'll see, or a ceiling with Democratic voters. Our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, is here with this morning's number. Good morning. This has been really fascinating, I think, to follow because he has a remarkable amount of support and his supporters are incredibly enthusiastic for him. Yeah, they are. You know, this morning's number is 20 percent because that's what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. support was in our last CNN poll of potential Democratic primary voters. And I think a lot of us, when we saw that 20 percent, along with some other polls that showed Kennedy's support between basically 15 and 20 percent, were really surprised at how high it was. So, you know, I think it's important to understand why his support is that high. And I've broken this down. Okay, this is the top choices for Democratic nominee. And we're going to look at those who approve of and have a favorable view of the current president, Joe Biden. And look at this. It's not a close race here. Joe Biden gets 73 percent of those voters. Mm -hmm. Kennedy gets just 12 percent. But then look at all of the other Dem voters, those who either don't approve of Joe Biden or don't have a favorable view of him. This is where Kennedy's support really comes into focus. Look at this. He actually leads Joe Biden amongst this group with 40 percent to Joe Biden's 24 percent. So the fact is, Kennedy's support is overwhelmingly from those who either don't like Biden or don't approve of him. So to get above that 20 percent, he's got to win some of these people here. That's exactly right. And that, to me, is going to be very, very difficult because take a look at this. Democratic voters like Joe Biden, 79 percent approve of the job he is doing as president. 78% have a favorable view of him. So all of a sudden, he's going to have to start winning voters that he isn't winning right now. And you know what? Here's the real issue. Look here. Look at views of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Among Democrats, his favorable rating is just 25%. His unfavorable beats that at 39%. Where Kennedy's base really is, is in the other party. Look at this. Favorable rating, 40%. Unfavorable 18. The fact is, he's picking up a lot of voters who don't like Joe Biden right now, but they make up just a small portion of the Democratic electorate. All right. Harry Enton, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Justin, CNN has learned that former President Trump's trial in the Mar a Lago documents has an initial date in mid August, but 
That date will very likely change. Judge Eileen Cannon, who set that date, said parties could ask to push back the trial date because of the complexities of the case. Cannon also says the trial will take place in Fort Pierce, Florida, according to court records. Uh, Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 felony charges in the case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Well, coming up, one of the awesome performances from CNN's special Juneteenth concert last night as Americans celebrated the holiday across the country. Time now for your morning moment. The brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. A look at the fraternities and sororities that are members of the Divine Nine who took the stage at CNN's Juneteenth, the global celebration for freedom concert. And the Divine Nine, of course, refers to a group of nine historically black Greek letter organizations, four sororities, five fraternities that work to be a catalyst for change on college campuses and beyond. Yeah, several of them founded at my alma mater, Howard University. That's right. Victor yeah. asked me in the break if I was Greek. And, and I said, what, Poppy? And I said, not your name, if you're a member of a Greek letter organization. I don't think I'm cool enough for no, that, friend. No. But that was an amazing concert yeah, to see was. last night. I'm so glad CNN did that. I'm so glad you were with us this morning. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.